Hello and welcome to Unramblings, a podcast about stories and storytelling. I'm Mark, I have a background in English literature and storytelling. And I'm Charlene and I have a background in social work and psychology. This week we're talking about the TV series Veronica Mars. We won't be discussing the film or the books because we have not consumed them in any way. Well, Charlene saw the film years ago. We are also joined for this recording by our cats, Misty and Shadow. Shadow is running around and making noise. So enjoy that. Yeah, yes, hello Shadow. <laughs> we'll obviously be spoiling all of the four seasons of Veronica Mars. If you've not seen the end of season four, it's a spoiler-heavy element. So do finish watching that before listening to this, if spoilers are a thing that you're worried about. If we have any other spoiler warnings, and we'll certainly have a whole load of content warnings, we'll drop those in right here. Hello! Okay, spoiler warnings. We mention a few plot points from Grey's Anatomy. We discuss some of the larger plot elements from the Sherlock Holmes stories. And we also talk a bit about Raymond Chandler's The Big Sleep, mostly just in referring back to stuff we talked about last week, as there's some similarities between that and Veronica Mars. As far as content warnings, as anyone who has watched Veronica Mars probably expects, we will be discussing plot elements that concern murder, suicide, rape, child abuse, including physical, sexual, emotional, or psychological abuse, bombings, a trans panic setup, and homophobia. It's gonna be a fun episode, guys. I mean, I hope parts of it will be fun. It certainly will not be light. And back to the past. Welcome back! So, after those cheery content warnings, because I know there are a lot in there, I'm sure. I love that this is a a fun teen drama and we have to put so many content warnings in for this. So, summary of what? Veronica Mars is a teen drama, hard-boiled detective story, basically, that ran for three seasons, then had a Kickstarter-funded movie, and then a fourth season in 2019, several years after the end of the third season. I think it was 15 years between season one and season four. Yeah. The protagonist is Veronica Mars, who is a detective, basically unofficially works for her dad, who's a private detective, and it starts after... Her best friend has been killed in mysterious circumstances, and her father, who had been the sheriff, is essentially ousted and shunned by the community for not doing a good enough job finding out who killed the girl, whose name is Lily. And this also leads to Veronica being ostracized at school, so she pretty much kind of loses her entire life and stability like normal life and stability overnight. During the first season, The show focuses on the overarching plot of Veronica finding out who killed Lily with a bunch of sort of mystery of the week puzzles to figure out in each episode. Then in the second season, it starts with a bus crash that Veronica narrowly escapes, you know, being a part of the casualties of. And the whole overarching mystery is trying to figure out who engineered the bus crash and why. And who killed Felix. And who killed Felix, who which is another mystery. It sort of has a concurrent mystery going on where um, one of Veronica's friends is sort of set up, you know, to kind of take the blame for the murder of a local gang member, and he's trying to get Veronica to help him figure out who actually killed that guy. Then the third season breaks from the overarching plot like season plot structure to have two third of the season plots and then like two smaller plots. So it's a bunch of shorter arcs. 
And then the fourth season returns to the larger overarching plot for the whole season, where it's trying trying to figure out who is engineering a whole bunch of bombings in the community that seem to maybe be related to attempts to get the town incorporated, something that would benefit wealthier people in the community um, at the... Well, the incorporation is season two, and the fourth season is the beautification rules. Is that part of incorporation as well? No, you're right. Season three is incorporation, so strike that. Season four is a return to the overarching season-long plot of who is bombing a whole bunch of businesses on the beachfront. This seems to be somewhat related to trying to end the spring break industry in Neptune that a lot of people are opposed to and like this whole beautification committee. And it kind of gets into some identity politics and class politics and things like that. Uh, is that about it? Yep, that's about it. I feel like that was long and meandering, but I, so I is the show. <laughs> I mean, if we're going to cover four seasons in one episode, then it's going to be a little bit uh, mm-hmm. extensive. But it's good to just remind everyone what's in which season because sometimes you get them mixed up. Indeed. Okay. We good to move into our back and forth? I think so. Okay, so I mean, we we don't we're not going to go through this from start to finish. So we're just going to sort of pick on some things that we want to talk about. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you want to open with? Well, why don't we start with Veronica Mars because it's the name of the show and she's the hero protagonist of the whole series. And okay, I worry that this might be a little bit us trying to do all of it in our first bullet point, but let's go for it. Let's hear, hear what you want to say. Well, she's set up as this, you know, detective character who's kind of marginalized from her community, not just from, like, her former friend group, but everybody at her school. And, you know, like, her mom has left. Like, she's pretty much the only person in her life that she has a supportive relationship with is her dad. And... Which is a supportive relationship, which is also a little bit weird of the employment angle, but... Yeah, so it kind of, it's starting out, She it's this very us against the world, me against the world in terms of Veronica kind of mentality that I think in some ways is a big part of the homage to or its place within the hard-boiled detective genre. Mm-hmm. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about Veronica Mars as one of those kinds of characters, like the detective in a mystery novel. Okay. You understand why I was like, we should do The Big Sleep before this one. Yeah, well, that's why I thought we should start with this conversation, because we did just do The Big Sleep. Um, So if you've not listened to The Big Sleep episode, go and listen to that and then come back. We'll wait. But not that long. (laughs) Just two hours of silence in the middle of this episode. (laughs) Why is this recording four hours long? Okay, so you said talking about her as a detective figure. Yeah. Just in terms of some of the storytelling elements that we talked about as being kind of hallmarks of that genre, like where are we seeing Veronica in those same patterns or being that same sort of figure? Didn't know I needed to review last week's episode. (sighs) Okay, well, why don't I start here? Like, so one of the things that I noticed when I was reviewing TV tropes, because we did watch all of Veronica Mars fairly recently, but it was a few months ago. One of the things that was pointed out was the idea of Veronica Mars as being a cast of a lot of exported characters from, like, Sherlock Holmes in particular, and Mm -hmm. also of the characters being sort of gender-swapped versions of the sort of archetypes that you see in detective fiction and, like, hard-boiled detective and film noir in particular. So you have Veronica as this sort of Sherlock Holmes 
Philip Marlowe type of character where she's going around noticing these small details and putting together all of these clues, especially from mysteries that seem disconnected, to construct a larger picture, but also being a deeply flawed protagonist herself, like, as a human being. And I think in a lot of ways, the show gets away with her being a lot more likable because she's so young, but... She's not done yet. But she, yeah, she's not done yet. But I think it's particularly interesting when you then see her in season four and she's an adult and she has sort of stagnated in her development and it's a lot harder to sympathize with some of her unhealthy coping coping mechanisms and her fixation on revenge, for example. It's interesting because I, like, while it doesn't make her an unlikable character, and I would argue that in season four she's not a likable character, particularly, like, and I'm sure we'll get into it later, like, things with, like, her relationship with Logan is Mm -hmm. problematic at best. And Um, the way that she treats Wallace and uh, is judgmental of him having a very normal life. But I think that in those first few seasons she's been in a position where she has been in that us against, that me against the world, Mm -hmm. I'm the one that matters and no no one else is as smart as me mm-hmm. and she's gone through the world being allowed to think that and sort of had this chip on her shoulder that no one's ever removed so whenever mm-hmm. she's challenged she just goes back to that mode it's interesting that you say that the chip on the shoulder that's never been removed and like always being the smarter one when I think it's important that she does like get caught a lot and I think that's another important part of like the hard-boiled detective in the film noir is like your plan doesn't always work and you sometimes have to improvise or get out of a tight spot because you you know you done fucked up basically and like she gets hurt she gets caught she gets embarrassed she gets arrested all of these things happen she gets framed like several times and so it's not that she's invulnerable or never makes mistakes it's that she always gets back up and keeps going she's just indefatigable like she's the terminator of detectives like she just keeps going and again that seems to be a hallmark of the genre because we talked about that last week with marlo it's like there's this point where you should have stopped and yeah. you didn't because you couldn't not pick at this well i think there is a point in the series at one point when she decides i'm just going to be a high school student Mm-hmm. I'm not going to do this. And it lasts about 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It's interesting you're talking about like how they're exported characters. And certainly I can see, like, within an archetype, like, sure, mm-hmm. obviously, Veronica is Marlowe, Holmes, whatever. So I guess that would make Wallace a Watson type of character, which mm-hmm. is a little strange because that's something that's usually lacking from the hard-boiled genre. Mm-hmm. I think that in general, you get the more sort of thoughtful, deductive reasoning ones where you have Holmes has got Watson, Poirot sometimes has Hastings. Usually there's a sidekick to have things explained to, mm-hmm. whereas the hard-boiled detectives do tend to be much more of loner figures. Mm-hmm. Marlowe doesn't have a Watson. Right. I Sam Spade, by in the National Hammett things, I'm pretty sure that his partner has been killed at the start of his first story, if I'm... I'd need to fact check that. Sarah Poretsky, B.I. Wachowski, that I talked about, sort of one of the more recent people who's really carrying on the hardball trend. There's a lot of backup characters out there, mm-hmm. but there's no one that's really like a Watson figure. It's the same thing with Dresden Files, where, like, especially toward the beginning, which I'm not going to get it too far into it because I know you're not finished with the entire series, you're not caught up on the series, which we're currently awaiting peace talks. But Harry also doesn't really have, like, a single sidekick Watson figure he has a cast of supporting people that sometimes help him in specific situations and that's another one where you definitely see some strong homages and and influence of characters like Marlowe and things 
Although I suppose that really Wallace isn't always around. He's in, not. In a, he is more of a supporting character that she'll go to to get files. Mm-hmm. So I guess... Okay, Friday. You, you mentioned Holmes as a figure, and I don't think I see Holmes as an archetype. But, yeah. I, but it does fit into the general hard-boiled... Yeah, thing. and that's part of why I wanted to raise it, because it was something where it's like exported characters from Sherlock Holmes specifically, and it's like Veronica's Sherlock and, and Wallace's Watson, and... I'm not mm-hmm. sure I totally agree. I think Veronica is more like Marlowe from reading The Big Sleep. Yeah. And from the things, to be fair, very vague absorption of the idea of Sherlock Holmes on my part, just from the popular, like, entertainment consciousness, like, because I haven't actually intentionally consumed anything about Sherlock Holmes, but... We'll, fi- we'll fix that. It's <laughs> Stay just, tuned for an episode on Sherlock Holmes. It's just, you know, but... it. it that character is part of the public consciousness now, yeah. and that's not who I would map Veronica onto. The no. Moriarty Casti Casablancas, from my again vague understanding of who Moriarty is, that I kind of get a little bit more. Moriarty is Cassidy. That was the mapping that I, that TV tropes argued. I'm gonna begin to think that maybe TV tropes haven't read Sherlock Holmes either. Maybe. I mean, my I guess concern Cam- is that he's only the villain for the one thing, and it's my understanding that Moriarty is sort of a recurring villain, right? He, he's a He's a villain for a couple of them, because they retroactively go back and have him rape her. Yeah. Which, I, we'll get to that as part of a later conversation that touches on that more, but, like, yeah. I, I have some problems with that. But, um, no, because, like, Moriarty's, like, the mastermind of a network. Mm. Like, people work for him. Okay. He, like, he is as smart as Holmes, perhaps more so. To say that Cassidy is, no, I don't... <laughs> you don't agree? Listeners, explain to me why I'm wrong on this, but I don't see Cassidy as Moriarty. I think that the the argument was just that he is a chess master type of character, where he has a lot of plans that hinge on people doing what he expects them to do and like manipulating them in very specific ways, and just being very skilled at that kind of engineering, like social engineering. So I think that was the argument there, and you'll have to tell me if that makes any sense, because again, I'm I'm not even sure why I'm talking about this. I really just want to know what your thoughts are, because I yeah. don't know. Um, I don't even buy him as a puppet master, because his plot hinges on two people are going to out his past, that he doesn't want that to happen. Mm-hmm. He doesn't manipulate them out of doing that, he blows them up. But he manipulates the rich kids into getting off the bus. He manipulates Veronica into thinking something else happened at that party than actually happened. I think he's a sociopath. Oh, he's totally a sociopath. He manipulates Mac in a lot of ways. I think that trying to fit him into a Moriarty mold is a convenience of the archetype and not actually Mm. true to his character. Sure. I think that if you were trying to find a Moriarty figure in there, to the character of Moriarty, Jake Kane would be a better analogue. But because, still not a good one. Because he sends Clarence Weedman to do his dirty work for him and yeah. manipulates his family in some ways. And a lot of stuff comes back to him. Like in season three, we find, find out that he's the head of the castle secret organization at Hearst College. The Tritons? The Tritons, yes. Yeah. The Tritons are the one at the high school. Mm-hmm. The castle is the stuff that goes on at the university. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Like he, he is more of a mastermind that everything comes back to. Cassidy is just comically evil, but weirdly lovable for the first, like, 95% of the first two seasons. Yeah, Cassidy is an interesting character that we're definitely going to have to talk more about him later. What else do you want to say about Veronica? 
I think it's very realistic the way that she's portrayed as being so deeply untrusting of people and self-sabotaging in her relationships and also obsessed with revenge because her pursuit of the truth is something she can control and everything else in her life is falling apart and she mm. has so very little to rely on. Even her father, who is a bedrock of like emotional support, is also struggling. Like he's trying to hold down a private detective business and raise a teenage daughter by himself while his wife has gone off who the hell knows where and, you know, is nowhere to help at all. And even when she does come back, isn't actually helpful. He ends up being a sort of pariah of the community himself to right. an extent. Yeah. And so he ends up going away on long business trips to for different cases, leaving Veronica unsupervised because that's the only way he can kind of keep financially supporting them. And so she's very on her own. And so I think that it makes a lot of sense that she intellectualizes to cope with her feelings in a way too. She focuses all of her energy and all of her pain on the mystery, especially in the first season when she's trying to unravel Lily's murder. It's like instead of dealing or like her way of dealing with that loss is to try and make sense of it. And if she doesn't know what happened, if she doesn't know why she has to experience that loss, she cannot get past it at all. Which is interesting with how it deals. Like it also, you've got the weirdly secondary plot of the of her rape at the party, mm -hmm. which does get pushed to a secondary point, and she does focus on the murder instead of mm -hmm. that a lot of the time. And I think partially as a sort of, there's an extent of denial of if I don't think about it, I don't have to deal with it on yeah. that part. And it's so painful. It's the two ends of a spectrum is mm -hmm. I will just focus on understanding this and I will just focus on not thinking about this. Yeah. At the same time, like she's simultaneously, she's running away from pain in both situations in one case by looking to, you know, facts and evidence and trying to make sense of it in the case of the of the Lily Kane murder, but just, as you say, not engaging at all with the other traumatic thing that has destabilized her life and her sense of safety. Yeah. And then in, like, the second season, it's very much the same thing with the bus crash. Like, she feels guilty that she wasn't on the bus it seems like the only way that she can find to deal with those feelings of survivor's guilt, which is an entire thing, is to try and bring their murderer to justice by finding out what happened. And throughout all of this, I don't see her getting the kind of like therapeutic support that she really should be getting. Like, her best friend was brutally murdered, and she was raped at a party, which, to be fair to her dad, he doesn't know about that. Yeah. But the murder, like, that's a traumatic thing, and, like, I think there's some mention of her having been in therapy for a bit, but she clearly never really engaged with the loss. Yeah. Or really dealt with it in any way, and then after the bus crash happens, she also doesn't really get any mental health support or, like, emotional support with that. Yeah, I mean, a lot, so much of the plot of these is, you should talk to someone. Mm -hmm. Um, And, like, there's the lack of therapy, but then also just, like, the number of things. As you say, her dad doesn't know about what went mm -hmm. on at the party. And, like, there's so much... I remember so many times watching it and just being like, just talk to your dad. Yeah. Like, that's all you need. Like, I know that you're a 16-year-old girl, but you need to just talk to your dad. If you tell him about what's going on here, mm -hmm. like, the two of you together are a better team, I assure you. Yeah. Um, one of the things I did like about season four is that mm -hmm. you have Logan being there like, you should talk to a therapist. Yeah. Like, as someone who has talked to a therapist, 
You should talk to a therapist. Yeah, and that was that's one of the things that I like the most about Logan's overall character arc and development because you start out really hating him as a teenager. And he does a lot of things that would be unforgivable in a lot of ways to an adult. Like, if you did not see the work that he ends up doing over time. Yeah. Like, he's racist. He tr- exploits homeless people. He's violent. He is vengeful. He has no fuse. Like... He's just intentionally cruel a lot. And you eventually get to know him well enough to realize that that is all deflection away from extremely painful and traumatic things that he's also, like Veronica, not dealing with. Like, assertively not dealing with. And then you get to see him in season four when he has recognized that those things are problems. That his anger is is a problem. That a lot of the behaviors that he learned growing up in an abusive household are not healthy and goes to therapy and starts working on those issues that he has because he doesn't want to continue to perpetuate those those unhealthy behaviors and tries to recognize the same in Veronica and be like, you've absorbed a lot of toxic things. You've ingrained a lot of toxic coping mechanisms over time and like they make sense for what you were dealing with, but they're not healthy or sustainable long-term for you and you should see a therapist also. Yeah. And she's so resistant to it. Yes. I definitely get the impression that a big part of her resistance to it is having had a bad or useless experience with therapy in the past because anytime some sort of tragic thing happens like in a school, like, and they, they do mention there's like grief counselors or whatever after Lily is killed, but then like there weirdly isn't after the bus crash or something. Uh, or no, it's, uh, there was grief counseling when Lily Kane was murdered at the school, but Weevil mentions another girl who went missing around the same time and they didn't do any sort of, you know, community response for that. Because um, she wasn't a rich white girl. Because she was not a rich white white girl, exactly. Yeah. And so we know that there were grief counselors around and we see some of the conversations between the school counselor and different people who were close with Lily. And those seem to have been very short-term and superficial attempts to kind of soothe the kids, which is probably fine when you don't know someone that well and you're just kind of trying to figure out how that event fits in your world and then keep moving forward, but is grossly insufficient for the best friend of the brutally murdered person, the brother of the brutally murdered person, the boyfriend of the brutally murdered person. The bit on the side of the brutally murdered person. Yeah, yeah, the, uh, yeah, the side piece of the brutally murdered person. So the, um, like, her distaste and, like, complete lack of faith in any sort of support like that, I think might be founded from having a really insufficient experience of it and just yeah. kind of deciding, well, this is clearly unhelpful. Just broad brush, like, unilaterally, that doesn't help. So just fuck that. I'm never doing it. Yeah. And that's um, true. A lot of people, I think, have that experience. They have shitty, they have like an, a shitty experience of counseling and they're like, well, that doesn't work. Yeah. I think there's a question that we're going to sort of examine throughout the rest of this episode is, like, does she change and improve as a person throughout the season of the series? Mm-hmm. But we'll, we'll, I think we'll circle back to that as yeah. we go. We, we br- briefly touched on rich white girl situations. Mm-hmm. So I think it makes sense to have a conversation about money and class and corruption at this point. Yeah. In the first season, the class divide and the money situation is extremely prevalent, like, from mm-hmm. the off, because you've got the weird intro thing where she's doing the voiceover mm-hmm. about how she was dumped, and it was terrible. Yeah. Um, 
and but it's very clearly stated that there is the O-Niners, the rich club, and then if you're not in that, then it's because you're poor. Mm-hmm. Um, and that there's no middle class, it's just the really uber-wealthy people and the people who work for the really uber-wealthy people. Yeah, and you have, like, the PCHs and it's like... Mm-hmm. The three type of people at the school, mm-hmm. the really rich kids, the biker gang, and others. Yeah. And, like, Veronica was allowed to be part of the rich club before because her father was, like, the chief of police or the sheriff, by whatever the term is. So, like, had enough of a role that he that she was allowed with them. Well, I thought but, the big part of that, her you know, entree into the rich kids club, is that she was best friends with Lily and dating mm-hmm. Duncan. But I think she was allowed to do that because of the social standing that the sheriff position had. I don't know, I always... I think it is mentioned in one of the earlier I thought it was just that because she and Lily were friends, like, uh, that maybe. was a thing. Either way, she's like this one middle-class person, you know, hanging out with the rich kids Yeah. in a community that has very little middle-class. But that, that situation gives a lot of room for social commentary on that situation, and there's a lot of very scathing comments from Weevil about... Yeah. About the rich kids and about her being part of that group mm-hmm. and his sort of lack of respect for her because he feels that she doesn't really treat him like a friend mm-hmm. because she thinks her friends are the rich kids and mm-hmm. he's just he's just head of a biker gang. We'll come back to Weevil. I mean, it's not a nuanced commentary on wealth and stuff. It's the, there are the haves and the have-nots. And that's kind of a problem. Yeah. It's really the extent of it. I don't know. I think that there is definitely a lot more explicit of a message that being wealthy and being raised surrounded by wealth is corrupting and leads to this perspective that it's okay that you get away with everything. Like, you don't have to abide by the same rules. Like, if I can get away with it, it's fine. Which is interesting because it's the same perspective Veronica takes as far as her intelligence. It's like, if I can get away with it, if I can trick you, if I can if I can get this through my cunning, it doesn't really matter if it's right or wrong or if it's by the rules. And it's interesting because, I mean, it's there's that common argument that uh, nobody in this story is actually a good person. Right. Keith is probably the closest you come. And even um, he makes some pretty big mistakes. He makes some choices as a father that are well, questionable. He ends up having an affair with a married woman, which okay, well, dramatically yeah. lower, with which dramatically affects Veronica's ability to respect him. Like, that's a huge problem for them later yeah. in the show. But you, you mentioned that like there's the rich kids being able to get away with it mm-hmm. sort of things. I think that's interesting. Like I can't remember what your words were exactly on that. Do you remember? That it doesn't matter what... Like, you said something just before that and I was going to respond to it. The wealthy people don't see a problem with using their money to get around the rules? Well, it's the, the general like lack of respect for the rules across the board. Like Veronica will break the rules for her PI stuff. Mm-hmm. The rich kids will break the rules because they don't have to worry about them because they're rich. Yeah. And then there's the PCHs. And it's interesting because you said money corrupts. Mm-hmm. And like I think the rich kids are breaking the rules because they can and because it's fun mm-hmm. and are sort of morally compromised. Mm-hmm. Whereas Weevil is shown multiple times to have a very strong code. It's not the same as that conversation we had last week about ethical, moral, and legal. Mm-hmm. He doesn't necessarily care about the law, no. but he does care about protecting his own. Mm-hmm. Like, one of the reasons that he responds so negatively to his cousin setting, like, framing him is because it's family stuff. He kills, or he 
puts Thumper in a position where he will be killed. Is it Thumper? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because he betrayed the group, that family of bikers. Well, it's not even just because he betrayed them. A big part of Weevil's objection to that whole thing is that it was in service of an enterprise that he that was against the moral code of that gang, which was that they right. don't they don't sell drugs, right? Because they're opposed to being a part of hurting their own community by mm. selling them drugs and getting people addicted to drugs. So when he finds out that there are bikers in his crew that are selling drugs on behalf of the Fitzpatricks, another gang, he is so pissed, not just because of it's a betrayal because it's behind his back and he's not getting any part of the money or anything. He doesn't care about that. It's that we have a code. We don't sell drugs. We don't get people hooked on drugs. We don't do this. We don't hurt our community like that. Yeah. And that's why it's like you, there's a disgust. There's a lack of respect Yeah. there where he's like, you are a waste of space and I and I no longer see the value in you being here. And also it's an example to other people of that we do not do this. If if the moral reasons aren't enough for you, maybe the threat will be kind of a thing is how I how I viewed that. Yeah. But he does have that code that he does stick to and yeah. he looks out for his friends most of the time, regardless of other things. Like he'll still go to bat for Veronica at times when he would fairly justifiably not Mm-hmm. He commits a lot of crimes, I'm not saying that's good, mm-hmm. but like he's working within the scope of what he's been assigned in life. Mm-hmm. And I think that if you compare like his character and his loyalty to people and his code to someone like Dick Casablancas, mm-hmm. whose code is largely kept within the front of his pants, mm-hmm. he's, he's, he's well named, let's just put that Yeah. Weevil, I think... A big part of why you say he's working within the confines of the cards he's been dealt in yeah. life, of being in a low-income family, being a man of color in a racist world that is biased against poor people. Like, I think that's a big part of it. It's like, well, the legal codes are already biased against me. Everyone is looking for me to break the law. I'm going to be under a microscope anyway. Fuck you guys. I'm going to get by however I need to get by. Right. You precisely. know? Yeah. He even, like, throws it in Veronica's face because she's really pissed in season four that he's returned to Criminal Enterprise and working at his uncle's chop shop. And it's like, you had an opportunity to go legit and not be involved in crime anymore. And he's like, yeah, I did. And then I didn't because I had no way of making any money and I had, I have people I need to support. And I wasn't able to go to college like you. And he's like throwing it in Veronica's face. He's like, you're here doing the same shit you were doing in high school and college and you're sitting on two Ivy League degrees or whatever, two two graduate degrees or whatever, and like you're wasting your time too. You have the privilege of getting out of here, doing something different with your life, and you're wasting it. And you're here throwing it in my face that I'm stuck and it's like, fuck you. And and I'm totally on his side with that. It's like, I, how I, dare I, you throw that in my face? I'm stuck here because our society is broken. Yeah. You're stuck here because you're broken. Yeah. I think it's interesting with the money stuff because in season two, there's like the big money issue that's going on is that there's Woody Goodman wants to get the town incorporated so that it can, in a way that will make things a lot better for the people who are rich and push out a lot of the people that are poor. Right. 
Because um, the, the proposed boundary lines end up sort of enclosing the rich people and will result in the property values within the boundary going up and they'll have their own police force and all this stuff. They'll have their own taxes. Yeah. Going to themselves instead of to support the lower income families and they won't have enough tax revenue to support themselves. Exactly. Yes. I'm going to wrap back down around to that in just a second. Season three, there's less of a focus on that side of things. The, you uh, So in season three, you get some stuff because you've got the point of view of Weevil working there as a maintenance worker mm-hmm. and he gets set up to things because he's seen as the dumb maintenance guy. Somebody um, who has a, who's known to have a criminal record and so is an easy person to pin something on. Right. But otherwise, largely partially because it's within this insular world of the university where people are more likely to be well off. But you, you get less of it in season three. But then season four, which they're making how many years later? 15 years later, something like that. Well, I guess it's probably 12 years after season two or whatever. 13 years. And the big concern is not incorporation, but it's the you know gentrification and pushing out of the spring breakers because the rich people want to have fancy car shops and this jazz and not have people coming around drinking and such. And it is, in a similar way, that issue of the rich versus the poor and gentrification that rang true for people to watch and go, yeah, that's a thing that's going on mm-hmm. 13 years ago. And then, still now, still a problem. Yeah. Um, it's definitely interesting because we're in Atlanta, and Atlanta has a huge problem with gentrification. It's like, yes. affordable housing is incredibly difficult to find. We're not in Atlanta. We're half an hour outside of Atlanta because that's where the affordable housing was. Exactly. And it's also no mistake that most of the affordable housing and more low-income neighborhoods are like south of the interstate and you know in the areas where traditionally most of the neighborhoods were black communities and other communities of color and you know they're also getting overtaken by this wave of gentrification. So yeah. Yay, societal problems don't change. We went to a super weird play a few years ago that was all about how terrible mixed-use developments were. And, you know, at local Atlanta stage production, like a small theater. And and this was a few years ago. Yeah, this is definitely a huge thing in, I think, pretty much every major city in the United States and even, like, most of the smaller cities. Yeah. So we talked a bit about money in class. I wanted to sort of loop into that um, the corruption element mm-hmm. um, and obviously there's the richer families tie into that but I think a big part of it is that in the first three seasons you've got Detective Lamb in charge mm-hmm. season four is its own problem you've got a bigger police department and like they just want to get things off their docket the person in charge wants to have a press day and get promoted its own issue but let's to focus on the main, bigger themes so yeah uh, with Lamb was there anything you want to talk about with that? He's pretty explicitly incompetent at actually being a police officer and, like, overseeing investigations and things like that. And it does seem pretty clear throughout the series that his main talent is being greasable by the uh, local wealthy people, like the Canes. Because that's how he ends up being the sheriff, is, like, after Keith, as sheriff, accuses Jay Kane of murdering his daughter, Lamb plays ball, basically, with the Canes in arresting Abel Kuntz, the guy that the Kane family set up to take the fall. Yeah. And he also, like, raises money by selling tickets to the policemen, or, like, some... Yeah, I think it's the policeman's ball, where he full-on blackmails a baseball star by being like, I can... 
I can release all this information about the illegal gambling you've been doing. Or you could spend $10,000 on tickets. Yeah. So it's pretty explicit that he's a shitty law enforcement officer and does not care about the community or, like, the individuals that he's supposed to be protecting. He ca- he cares about things running smoothly and getting re-elected. Yeah. Um, keeping the important, quotes, important people happy means rich people. And will go off on his own vendettas against the Mars family and accuse them whenever possible. Which, mm-hmm. to be fair, sometimes he's not wrong, but... Yeah. They do kind of make a half-hearted attempt to humanize him a little bit in the episode where Veronica and Duncan find out that the Mannings, um, Meg's family, have their right. daughter like locked in a closet, yeah. and she's like seven years old. Not that there's any age at which that's appropriate, but when they tell Lamb about what's happening after the Mannings have found Duncan and Veronica in their house and called the police, he believes them, and he does say something about his family having... Like, there's some implication that his parents abused him in some way. The problem that I have with that is that, like, yes, he... he But then they never revisit it. Yeah, he lets them go. He asserts that, yes, this is a problem, and then we're never told anything else. Like, the Manning family Mm -hmm. is just forgotten as far as plot goes. So maybe he goes back and arrests them or calls Child Protective Services or something, but we never hear anything about it. Yeah. Which, considering how much Veronica's been tied up in Meg's life and past that, is very strange to me. It is. It's definitely a loose thread. If he cared enough at all, it doesn't make sense for him not to have followed up Well, there is a shot afterwards, like, they, the family look out the window and he's sitting in his car outside. Mm-hmm. As if he's watching them. Mm-hmm. And he might be calling for support for that. Right. It's, but, but as I say, it's odd that we never hear anything more. It is. While we're talking about Lamb, it's hard not to talk about his demise, which is... Unceremonious. Right. The character of Lamb is interesting because he's painted as super cartoonishly evil and kind of obstructing of the Mars investigations for such a long time, and then he dies and there's just, like, hardly a ripple in the story, and that's just kind of weird. Yeah, it does feel like the only reason to kill him off was to allow for the plot point that Keith and Vinny are now running for sheriff. Yeah. Like, it was a plot convenience to kill him. hmm So, we kind of touched on this a little bit when we talked about the Mannings and a little bit about the Casablancas family and things like that, but there is a recurring backdrop of horrifically dysfunctional family in this universe, in this setting, like, throughout the show. It's like every family we meet is dysfunctional or has some sort of crazy trauma going on or in their past. And I just thought we should talk about that, just the depiction of families in this show. So, can we start off by saying, is there a functional family that we're shown as a starting point? There are two semi-functional families that I observed. Okay. Okay, so there's the Mackenzies, which is Mac's family. Yep. We see Mac... We see Mac's family, and, like, Mac feels like a sort of odd man out in her family. Like, she's not interested in the same things as they are. She's kind of got a different temperament. Like, they're all much bubblier people than she is. She's very quiet and and very interested in, like, programming and things like that. And they're into, like, hunting and hiking and stuff. They're way more outdoorsy. But they seem to love her. They seem to love all their... Her parents seem to love their kids and, you know, look out for their best interests and things like that. Like, I don't see anything dysfunctional in, like, the way that they parent. And she, like, has a very natural sisterly relationship with her sibling. 
Yeah, with like, her little brother. Like, yeah. she, she hates him in the way that a sister hates her little brother. Yeah, in that she doesn't really hate him, she just finds him kind of annoying and, like, you know, around when she doesn't want him around. Yeah. And, you know, that's pretty traditional. But, of course, apparently Mackenzie was switched at birth, and she was originally born to the Sinclair family, like, the wealthiest family in town. And so there's, like, this weird situation outside of the family's control that kind of throws a wrench in the works, where she's going to always wonder, like, what it would have been like had she been raised in this other family that she does meet and that does seem to have similar interests to her and temperament to her, etc. Which is another part of the, like, money class divide stuff. It's another conversation about that of, like, that. what would my life have been if I'd been born to that money instead of... Right. Oh. Yeah, instead of into this family that is okay but kind of struggling. And also that seem the struggle seems to have had a little bit of an effect on her moral development because she develops this, like, purity test thing to raise a bunch of money, which is of questionable morality, but she does it so she can afford to get a car that is actually, like, drivable. Which her parents apparently don't question. Yeah, which I do think is funny. It's like, how how are they not like, where the hell did you get enough money to buy a brand new uh, Volkswagen Bug? Um, I wanted at the stage pad. Yeah. So, so that's interesting. Like, you see this one family that seems to be pretty healthy, and they have... Like a weird secret in their family history that kind of mucks things up and where there's a dysfunctional choice that's been made to not tell Mackenzie about that. Like, you know, we talked about it a little bit in the American Gods Gods thing of like, you know, if your child is adopted or there's some situation like that, like it is a good idea for them to know about it so it doesn't become this whole thing later that's traumatic and difficult and they don't do that. So there's that. But comparing that to all the other family, okay, well, there's also, like, one other family that seems loving and at least emotionally supportive, and that's Weevil's family. Weevil lives with his grandmother and his cousins, and we don't know what happened to his parents, like, if they left, if they died, if they're in jail, what what's going on with them, but he loves his grandmother, he has very strong familial loyalty, he takes his little uh, cousin to the school carnival and things like that. But he also works at his uncle's illegal enterprise and has insufficient supervision to the degree that he's able to run a biker gang. So there's definitely some problems in terms of a healthy and supportive environment that's meeting all of a teenager's needs, including their need for supervision and boundaries. Like, Weevil doesn't seem to have the boundaries that, you know, would really be desired and and necessary for a teenager. I remember when I saw, first saw the first couple of episodes, I had assumed that Weevil was, like, an older kid, like, maybe in his early 20s, because he was running a biker gang, and I don't understand how you run a biker gang out of high school, and maybe I just don't know enough about American high schools, but it seemed weird to me. Or about Southern California. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Gangs do, from what I understand, recruit young, but... But it's the whole gang is in high yeah, school. Yeah, the whole gang is in high school, and that seems a little weird. It would be more realistic if they were all part of a larger gang that include older people. Right. But but no, they're just at high school together. Which... Yeah, but then you have Sons of Anarchy, and we already have that show, except that show came later. But anyway. Yeah, so point being, like, that family seems to be supportive in a lot of ways, but also not completely functional, right? Or healthy overall. Um, however, when you contrast the Mackenzies and the Navarros with the Mars family, where we have Leanne Mars, who struggles with alcoholism, abandons her family, also most likely had a long-standing affair with her high school boyfriend during her marriage that makes it reasonable to question the paternity of her child, also has a whole lot of supervision problems in terms of Veronica, and where Leanne's absence has 
resulted in Veronica's increasing role as a parentified child, where she's having to take care of herself in a lot of ways. She's having to, you know, feed herself most of the time. She's having to take care of her dad in a lot of ways. She's having to worry about the finances with him. All of those are things that we would refer to as parentifying a child, and it's not healthy. And it re- results in a lot of problems with boundaries, with, with the parent-child boundary in particular, with um, a parent being a child being able to respect their a parent's authority because it's hard to respect someone's authority when you have just as much responsibility in terms of you know the survival of the family unit as the adult does. Yeah, and I I think that we should mention that I think that is well drawn. Oh, definitely. Um, yeah, like it it is well shown throughout from the very beginning. Like there's stuff that she feels she should keep from her dad. Mm-hmm. Because she can deal with it, because that's her responsibility, and, and not she doesn't want to worry, worry him about. about. Yeah. yeah, and the point at which your child feels like they can't burden you with things because you have too much to deal with, or they're worrying about the finances, or they're worrying about taking care of you as the adult. Like that's an unhealthy dynamic, and you're getting it. that's a parentified child. I think it's most well exemplified from the point at which she finds her mother, who mm-hmm. is still her dad's wife, mm-hmm. and checks her into rehab without telling her dad and by spending her own college savings money mm-hmm. to do so. It, it's one of those moments when you're screaming at the TV, talk to your father. Yeah, this isn't a decision you should be bearing by yourself. You shouldn't be the one having to do this. But she's also in that same position, like, she's having to care for her mother as well. Right. And it's that whole, she's being trained to do that. And, I mean, you get some elements of that in season four when she's older and her dad is having some mental issues because of medication that gets wonderfully cleared up at the end. That makes more sense. Because she has grown into that role. So the role Mm -hmm. makes more sense at that point. Mm -hmm. But when she's still 17, 16, Mm -hmm. whenever she's supposed to be in the first season, yeah. Yeah. So you have that. And then, of course, you have the Eccles family, which is just all kinds of dysfunctional. There you have a pattern of intergenerational physical abuse where Logan's father uh, physically abuses him. And... Also emotionally abuses him, like, says a lot of things to him that are very denigrating of of his potential and, like, etc. He, Logan's father, Aaron Eccles, says that he was abused by his father at one point. Oh, I turned out fine. (laughs) Right? And also is ridiculously philandering, like, to an unrealistic extent. Maybe not because he's a movie star. Maybe it is realistic. But he... Like, sleeps with, like, three or four different women at a party his wife attended. Um, like, to the point that he's not even sure who all he slept with. Like, he might have forgotten about a waitress or something. It's, like, very weird. He gets stabbed by one of these people that he slept with and then ignored. He sleeps with his son's teenage girlfriend and murders her. Um, so he's a statutory rapist you know, and murderer. Both, both bad things. Both very bad things. He also tries to kill Veronica. Uh, when she finds out. Also not great. Also not great. Um, beats the living shit out of his daughter's boyfriend after his daughter, you know, gets, gets into a, an abusive relationship. And it's interesting to me that Trina ends up in an abusive relationship because she doesn't seem to know that her father is abusive. And that's something you, like, you often see mm-hmm. women replicating, well, you often see people replicating abusive patterns from their households because it's what they are used to. It's what they view as like a normal dynamic. It's the pattern that was kind of cut for them basically, but she doesn't believe Logan that their father is abusive. She makes fun of him for his claims that Aaron abuses him. 
So it's interesting that she still ends up gravitating. It makes me wonder if Aaron is emotionally abusive to her in other ways, but he does seem to like, you know, she seems to be his favorite. So yeah. it's, it's interesting. But she ends up in a, a really a similarly abusive relationship and he beats the crap out of this guy in a deeply uncomfortable scene that I think we could talk about when we talk about the ship portrayal of violence in this show. But this is the environment Logan's raised in. And like his mom seems very passive and doesn't really protect him from any of this. He loves her and he wants to protect her even though there's no indication that Aaron abuses his mom. And he in fact seems to have internalized from his father abusing his mother that you don't do that, you don't raise a hand to a woman. Well, the thing is that he doesn't physically abuse her. But he does emotionally abuse her and, and financially, financially abuse you're her. You're right. Yeah, he does definitely financially abuse her in that he controls all their money and stuff and, like, threatens to cut her off, I think, at some point, right? So, yeah. Well, he threatens her with divorce. Yeah, he threatens her with divorce. Right before she kills herself. Yeah, he threatens her with divorce right before she kills herself. So, yeah, he is abusive in that way, and maybe that's part of what kind of sets that for Trina in terms of, like, viewing a man who is going to be controlling and, you know, constricting of your movements and things like that as an appropriate partner. Yeah. Even if she didn't necessarily internalize the idea of physical abuse as being okay. But yeah, so you have that. You have this intergenerational, you know, pattern of abuse and of anger being an appropriate response to problems, which is something we definitely see Logan struggle with. He is a very violent person. He does not hesitate to respond to insult and inconvenience with violence, not to mention like an actual affront to him, like hurting one of his friends or, you know, actually challenging him in some way. So yeah, so you have that family dynamic. I'm just trying to think if there's anything I want to add to that. Logan's mom ends up committing suicide, like all of that. And he, he obviously struggles with that a lot, and yeah. like, there's all denial there. And that's a big part of, of his beginning to grow as a character and to be a little bit more reflective of the kind of connections he wants to have in the world, which is a very interesting part of his development. But, and it's in, but it's interesting within the family dynamic that that puts Aaron Ackles into a transformative position where he at least on the surface, wants to spend time with his son, be a family, step away from the spotlight of movies, etc. Mm-hmm. This death has done that for him, but the murdering of his son's girlfriend, mm-hmm. that didn't do any of this for him. He didn't have any remorse over that. In fact, he seems to like he seems upset that his wife is gone for not not great reasons necessarily, but like that definitely does take an emotional toll on him. But we never see any signs that, like, I think he blames Lily that Lily is dead. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like he, she made me kill her basically because yeah. she was going to expose the relationship. Yeah. Or not even the relationship, but she was going to expo- expose the crime of yes. raping her because she was too young to consent. And so, yeah, he definitely does blame her. Like, he views her as forcing his hand and being why that situation got out of hand. Yeah, Trina is also interesting because she seems to have deeply internalized this whole, like, if I have the money, I can get away with whatever, or I shouldn't have to do anything I don't want to do. And, like, she just doesn't seem to understand why certain things are not okay. Um, like, she uses um, Logan's m- mom's credit card after she has died, which makes Logan question whether or not his mother is actually dead. And prolongs his ability to come to terms with her death. Yeah. And just the complete lack of awareness, like emotional awareness of like how fucked up and not okay that is, is just amazing. 
And it's astounding to me how she doesn't care, how she doesn't believe Logan about the abuse from Aaron. She doesn't think twice about using his dead mother's credit cards to, you know, live lavishly or whatever and in general doesn't really seem to want much of a relationship with him but then when logan is sleeping with a woman her age is deeply upset and feels that's not okay and like becomes weirdly protective of him and is like you know she's way too old for you this is not appropriate you know and like suddenly grows some sort of conscience and and you know desire to look out for him it's very weird so we talked about Lily, so I think it makes sense to move on to the Kane family. Right, which definitely has a whole black sheep favorite thing going on, where there's very explicit favoritism of their parents between the two kids. Um, I think Logan says that uh, Lily said that their parents are adored Duncan and tolerated her, and if she couldn't get their love or their approval or something, she would piss them off instead. And it's it's very clearly the bad attention is better than no attention kind of phenomenon. Yeah. Um, where that kind of that, that kind of favoritism leads to. Like if you're gonna get in trouble no matter what you do, then do whatever the fuck you want. You know, if the only way that you could your parents show that they care about you is when you're in trouble, then that's what a kid is gonna do. They also there's a whole lot of elitism there with them being like kind of running the town because they're the wealthiest family and there's a really negative side of their ambitions for Duncan. Like, they're like, oh, you're going to be president one day. And, like, very seriously, like, you're going to be president one day. And Duncan's like, maybe that's not what I want. Yeah. Maybe I would like to do anything else. No, no, I, apparently I'm going to do that. Like, mm-hmm. you will take these classes. You will do this, that, and the other. You will run for... Mm-hmm. Like, they submit his... Submit for him to be, is it... What Class is it? president or Class whatever, president, when yeah. he has no interest in running. Yeah. yeah. There's very much, like, despite the fact that they favor him and kind of just tolerate Lily, I guess, you're right. Like, they don't actually, like, listen to him or care what he wants for his own life and just sort of run roughshod over him with their own ideas for him. Yeah. They're trying to force him into a mold. They want him to take over the business, too, I think, at one point. Um, but yeah, they're they're really gearing up for him to like enter politics and be president, be a senator or something. And there's some pretty classic sexism in the, oh, you're going to be president and run the company and you're a woman, so we don't really care about you as far as the favoritism of their kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I also wonder to what extent some of their polarized treatment of them has to do with Lily presumably having developed as a woman very young, because I suspect she started getting sexualized by people very early, which is something that is difficult for a lot of younger girls to deal with when you have suddenly a whole lot of adult male attention that's very confusing, especially if you're not getting any positive attention from your parents where, like, there may have been some interaction there with her being wild and rebellious and sexualized in a way that they were very uncomfortable with, and they end up kind of just defaulting to trying to shut her down no matter what she's doing, rather than teaching her that, you know, she is loved for more than her body and things like that. So, because she does end up becoming, being boy crazy and, you know, being on and off again with Logan and cheating on Logan with other people, cheating on Logan with his dad, which is just really weird, and, like, then trying to use her sexuality to get a position of power over Aaron Eccles of being like, I'm gonna, you know, you know, release these tapes that you made without my consent of us 
having sex when I'm underage and it's going to ruin your life. Well, like, there's, a, there's also the stuff with the fact that Jake Kane is cheating on his wife with his high school girlfriend. Mm-hmm. Um, and then his wife's response is to tell her son to get away from the girl that might be his half-sister. We don't know if she really thinks that. Well, no, she does really think that because there's a concern about the inheritance. Mm-hmm. Um, but we know that Lily must know something about that because at first she's like, why is Duncan being such an asshole to you? And then she's like, yeah, you should probably not date Duncan. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, definitely. So Celeste Kane, who is Duncan and Lily's mom, definitely knows about the long-term affair between Leanne Mars, Veronica's mom, and Jake Kane because of that whole thing. And because of that, treats Veronica like shit, like, all the time, like, from, like, their entire relationship, like, even when she and Lily are best friends, like, as kids. Celeste's just always, always a jerk. So and that, that seems to be because she knows her mom is sleeping with her husband and she's but she's taking it out on a child and so that's shitty but yeah so you have this whole thing so you have this long long term affair you have this favoritism between your kids you have this imposing an idea of what they should do as a future all of those things um not to mention the fact that jake kane has like a head of security that he uses as like a fixer to like set up a guy to take the fall for his daughter's murder when he thinks his son did it because that's another thing jake um jake and celeste find duncan crying trying to wake up lily when lily is dead and covered in her blood, and they think he killed her because he has epilepsy and has been known to have violent outbursts that he doesn't remember. Which, again, is a problematic depiction of someone with an epileptic disorder, very much, like, pretty much straight from the big sleep. But a different problematic than this. Yeah, in that he didn't kill his sister, but people then think he's capable of, you know... Including himself. Including, yeah, he himself isn't sure, and it's it's horrible for him, like, when he finds out about uh, about it, because he doesn't remember it first. It might be, and I was wondering about that too, if it's an intentional subversion of what happens at the end of The Big Sleep. But yeah. So yeah, all kinds of drama and trauma and dysfunction, all kinds. Then you have the Goodmans, who really show up in season two, the bus crash season, and Woody Goodman is running for mayor, right? Or uh, it's it's a weird title, but they are like it's effectively the mayor. Yeah, so he's trying to get some position, basically in charge of the town, running on a platform of getting the town incorporated. But it turns out that he's a child molester who molested several children in the little league teams that he coached. One of whom was Cassidy Casablancas, and that's horrible. There's also when they're trying to figure out who Meg. Meg did a lot of babysitting and she wrote in her journal about a kid who she thought was being abused. And so they're trying to figure out which of the kids she babysat for was being abused. One of the possible candidates is Woody Goodman's son. And there's some implication that his mom is maybe abusive in some way, like maybe excessive punishment or emotional abuse or something because he's just terrified of... His mom finding out about any complaint about him at all, like, to a, like, having a breakdown type of extent. And like, doesn't he spill some water or yeah, something? Yeah, like, he spills some water and he's, like, freaking out. And Woody also is, like, at a point when he's like, I'm gonna have to tell your mother about this or whatever. And he's just, like, the kid is just completely terrified, yeah. which indicates some sort of really deep dysfunction in terms of parenting and discipline. Even if Woody Goodman's not sexually abusing his own children, it seems his wife is abusing their kids in some way, or at least their son in some way. You know, the Mannings, since that's how we got to this, they apparently, when their children are too young to be tested, 
have them do exhaustive amounts of lines and notebooks and have them shut up in closets for extended periods of time without bathroom breaks, which is just horrible. And that seems to be related to some sort of strange religious beliefs. It's very unclear the extent of that abuse, but it's clearly abuse. Then there's the Casablancas, and, like, they're almost as fucked up as the Eccles, but in a different way. I keep thinking we're almost through all the families that could be dysfunctional. We are. I think that, I mean, aside from just that the Sinclairs spoil their daughter, like, horribly. That's not dysfunctional. That's That's just just not great parenting. Not great parenting. But, like, yeah, I think Casablancas are the last ones. We've missed one. We did? Fennel. Oh, yeah, you're right. Fennel, which is, again, a minor-ish one. Wallace's dad abandoned the family got caught up in drugs as being an undercover officer. His mom takes the kids and moves to another state and doesn't tell him about his kid or anything and then doesn't tell Wallace about his dad. He thinks his dad is dead. Yeah, the, the that is dead part is really the, That's the problem. problem part there. Yeah, so she tells him his father is dead because she doesn't want him to know that his father is a corrupt police officer drug addict. And then he tries, he goes and basically kidnaps Wallace. I mean, I think Wallace agrees to go with him, but it's still kidnapping because he doesn't have his, you know, ex's permission, Wallace's actual guardian's permission to take him away and out of state. So that's a whole thing that is minor in the laundry list of the other family's dysfunction. Yes. Which, getting to the other families, the Casablancas family. I mean, do you want to take this one? I feel like I've been talking for a very long time. Oh, no, you've got a good rhythm there. So, the Casablancas, we know Dick and Cassidy. Casablancas are the two boys. Cassidy is the younger. His father, their father's name is also Richard, and is often referred to as Big Dick Casablancas. And you know what? He is a big dick, so sure. But their pastime, and by their I mean Dick Sr. and Dick Jr., is to just torment Cassidy and, like, have contests to make him cry first and things. They refer to him as Beaver, as a cruel joke. And his mom is in France or something with her current husband. And yeah, after he, after Big Dick goes to jail or like has to flee the country, she comes back country. and they're like, oh, so we can live with you. And she's like, oh... No, no. Yeah. Not not that. That would that would really impinge on my lifestyle. Yeah, very much so. And like Big Dick marries Kendall, who's like 25 and has absolutely no interest in being like a stepmother in a parental role to these teenage boys, but ends up being the only adult in the house when their father flees the country ahead of charges of fraud, basically, like large-scale white-collar crime. And so then they're, yeah, they're just on their own. Cassidy's able to manipulate his mom into giving them early access to their trust by being like, why don't, why can't we just live with you, knowing that she's gonna be like, So their mom is very uninvolved in their lives, even at a point when they desperately need someone to take care of them and their dad actively torments one of them and favors the other and marries a woman half his age all of this constant torment throughout cassidy's entire life seems to be a big part of why he ends up blowing up a bus full of kids also the sexual abuse that he experiences at the hands of woody goodman as a child on his little league team but it's no wonder that a kid wouldn't feel safe talking to their parents about, you know, having been molested, if your parents are always making fun of you and teasing you and trying to make you cry and just generally reveling in your pain. Like, no, that's not an environment in which you 
bring any problems to your family and get any sort of support. So it's just also his brother pressures him into raping a passed out girl at a party. That's a thing through like, you know, emasculating language and things like that. And just generally a jerk to him in public, humiliating him in public. So yeah, there's that family as well. These are the families we see across the season or the series. So that's, uh, that's quite a laundry list. It is. Do we think that we have all of these dysfunctional families because it's convenient for plot reasons? Like, if you've got all these people who are really messed up, then they can do messed up things? Or do you think there's a deeper reason for it all? I think a big part of it is it's the dysfunction junction, as TV Tropes calls it, where it's like most of the characters have some sort of crazy traumatic stuff going on that's really dramatic and it's part of, you know, building tension and having things to focus on in terms of the story and, like, in terms of making compelling characters. Like, it's tragedy as backstory, basically, for, Mm. like, everyone. We didn't even get to her, but even, like, Jackie, uh, who comes in later, has this situation where, like, her... She's a teen parent and her her mom is, you know, a struggling waitress and she works in a restaurant and, like, but she's kind of wild and so she goes and lives with her biological father who doesn't have a relationship with her mom, but is famous, and it's like, it's it's all, it's that everyone has some sort of complicated and dysfunctional backstory to make them interesting characters. So it's primarily a form of storytelling, you'd say? I don't know, because I think that, I think, in some ways I think it's a crutch, because not everyone starts out with a horribly dysfunctional backstory, and not everyone's backstory is as horribly dysfunctional from the beginning. Like, there are certain things you get from the beginning of certain people getting introduced, like Veronica's mom being an alcoholic and leaving the family, and Aaron being abusive to Logan, and, like, the the favoritism with the Canes. But some of it's, like, added late to, it seems, provide later plot than kind of come out of nowhere otherwise. Like, Wallace's stuff is added later. Like, Mackenzie's... Mackenzie's switched-at-birth situation. And also her weird sexual thing with Cassidy. Mm Mm-hmm. But it's interesting, now the more I think about, like, the number of other characters that do have just something hilariously tragic in their backstory. Not hilariously tragic, that doesn't even work as a hyperbole. Unbelievably tragic, or like... Like, just just everyone does have something. Like, there's um, the woman who runs the bar in... Yeah. Uh, in season four, mm-hmm. is has like been sexually assaulted, and that's her backstory: is that mm-hmm. she does not tolerate people sexually assaulting people in her bar, or in general. Mm-hmm. Which is a believable backstory, mm-hmm. but when you add it into every other one, mm-hmm. and like the villain in season four, it turns out got jumped and beaten horribly and nearly like and left to die by a bunch of teenagers on spring break or whatever yeah and it, like that's why he hates all the spring break people all the kids who come in for spring break because some of them jumped him one time and, yeah and left him for dead and he also has like a weird like psychopathic need to win yeah yeah and i in terms of all of this like family drama i do think one of the more interesting cases is dick and logan because they both are some of the only ones who we see like really kind of grapple with the wounds that their families left them with like logan worries about the anger problems that he has and like how violent he is as a way of reasserting control and feeling in control again and dick breaks down like he he pushes it away for a while after cassidy commits suicide following 
the events of season two. But he does get into a real bad way and he confronts his father about like, is it our fault that he was evil? He being his brother, like we tormented him for fun his whole life. And he's asking himself and he's asking his father, like, did you raise us evil? Like, did you make us bad people? Am I a bad person because of you? Or was he a bad person because of us? Yeah. And it's really shaken him to his core and he really starts to question who he is and what he's inherited from his family. Dick is such an interesting character for his like for those moments when he is introspective. Mm-hmm. It doesn't happen often, but when he is, like it does paint a really interesting picture. Mm-hmm. He reminds me a lot of Vivian in The Big Sleep. And it's like, yeah. he he runs away from those, like, internal confrontations most of the time, but sometimes he can't, and it comes out. Huh. That's an interesting thought. And then you have Cassidy as Carmen. Yeah, that's because, what I was just thinking. <laughs> because, and, and it follows into the whole thing of this being a sort of gender-swapped film noir, gender-swapped detective story, yeah. where you have Veronica as the gumshoe, and you have the wealthy family with the two fucked-up kids, which could be the Canes, or it could be the Eccles, or it could be, you know, could be the Casablancas. Like, they all kind of fit in a different way. Yeah. It is an argument that maybe Rob Thomas was uh, drawing on that more heavily than we expected. Hmm. And I expected. I, I knew that there was some drawing there. With the dysfunctional families, I keep expecting to look at it and see some sort of trend of it being, like, a message, uh, like, a commentary on something in particular. Mm-hmm. And I mean, like, with the Kane, Eccles, and Casablancas, it would be very easy to say, oh, well, they're dysfunctional because of the money side of things. Mm-hmm. Like, it would track a lot with the other stuff that's being said. But then, with the Mars, Mackenzies, and Fennels also being, mm-hmm. the Fennels also being kind of dysfunctional in their own ways. I mean, to a lesser extent, like... Yeah, I think it is more playing into just that, like, sort of soap opera-esque. Yeah. Everyone can be, everyone has problems. Yeah. It's interesting that each of the families has got this dysfunctional and, like, problematic history as far as the storytelling side of things, because sort of the plot does as well. The first episode opens with a fairly traumatic event of your best friend being killed, mm-hmm. and also the traumatic event of having been raped and not knowing who did it at a party while you were passed out from drugs. Mm-hmm. And then from that point onwards, I think there's just, from the showrunners, an attempt to one-up the level of trauma each time that it comes around. Yeah. And I think that it gets to be a problem, mm-hmm. because... It gets to that point where nothing can ever be resolved and like you keep getting harked back on the trauma. She can't get over things and move on. There's no scope for her to be happy about things because they have to keep putting in more trauma. And I think people might who have seen the show would know where we're going with this. But like, so from, from the first uh, season, you've got the rape and murder situation going on. It's bad mm-hmm. enough. So then they go, okay, what can we do that's worse in the second season? Well, we'll throw a bunch of school kids off a cliff. Mm-hmm. That That's a good start. And then we can add a nice dose of survivor's guilt to Veronica's plate. Yeah. Because that, she's be good. just, you know, solved the murder so she can start to process that grief. But we wouldn't want to give her time to do that. Yeah. <laughs> like... And during the season, we'll have her go to a open day at a university where someone will get raped and her ex-boyfriend that she really hates will get accused of it. And she'll have to clear his name. And then into season three, we get a season that's 
just about campus rape, which is an important topic to discuss. Well, you're forgetting that during the course of season one, she thinks she found out that what really happened yes. at the party, and it seems that she and Duncan just had both semi-drugged, semi-consensual sex. In yes. terms, Consensual in that they both were on board, but semi because they were also both not really in a position to consent because they had both been drugged. Yes. And so it seems like maybe she wasn't raped exactly. And then... I would argue it's... Yeah, well, it's murky terms, I would still say probably considered rape somewhere, but I think the people to blame just weren't either of the two parties involved. Well, yeah, the, the person involved is... they were both drugged is, by the people. But then, at the end of season two, Cassidy Casablancas reveals that he had lied when he told her that he didn't rape her, but that he actually did. Which really pisses me off, because I feel like it was a retcon it, on it the part of the show, show creators, and just needlessly... Yeah, it was... Originally, he wasn't lying when they wrote that he said that, you know, Dick encouraged him to rape her, but he didn't. And they changed it because they felt it would make the climactic scene at the end of season two have a stronger emotional impact. Which is kind of bullshit. Yeah, and she had come to terms with it, so it's Mm -hmm. just additional problems on top of that. Yeah. like It's a problematic use of rape as backstory of, like... Or rape as character development. It's like, no, that's just unnecessary. And I don't think that it's really true to the character as such, either. To Cassidy or to... To to Cassidy. In that, like, I feel that they were just trying to make him more hateable. Mm -hmm. A lot of the other things he did Mm -hmm. make sense, but he is also supposed... There's also an implication that he has hang-ups about sexual interactions Mm -hmm. because of past trauma. Yeah. So I don't quite buy it. Yeah. But it is what it is. It's canon. And then, as I say, season three, half the season's about campus rape, mm-hmm. um, which is an important thing to talk about. It is an issue to varying degrees in different places. It's an issue outside of campuses as well. But I understand why it's there, culturally. But at the same time, it's additional trauma. They threaten Veronica within the story with rape again, as if she gets her hair partially shaved thing, and then mm-hmm. Logan rides in and saves the day. Mm-hmm. It's like, that's just building on top of that. And then I think the second half of that season, they they do let up on it for, like, a few minutes, and instead it's just, like, you know, she finds out her TA is killing people and, like, she loses faith in everyone, and it's just great. Yeah. Yeah. Less trauma there. Then season four rolls around, and she's come back into town and has some things that she needs to deal with within herself. Again, Logan's like, you need to go to therapy, Mm -hmm. but is in a better place. The relationship with Logan isn't healthy, but it is less healthy for Logan than it is for her. If she could grow as a character, it could be a healthy relationship. Mm -hmm. Logan has worked through his stuff, and then they have bombings, which is a fairly traumatic thing in general anyway. Mm-hmm. It's that inevitability of it, and it's like, you, you're not going to know sort of thing. And I think within our current cultural mindset of where we are with bombs and threats that have happened across the country over the past few years, like, I, again, I understand why it's there. But then we get down to the final scene, which is the big spoiler, with Logan's death. Right. Which is almost comically built up with the, like, rushed wedding, and she's in her wedding dress, and they're about to go away, and, oh, no, he's going out to move the car. Mm-hmm. And it feels like such a fuck you to the audience and to Veronica. Yeah. It's that point of you just want the protagonist to be allowed to be happy. Mm-hmm. But it's... Do you have anything you want to say before I talk about what the showrunners have said about the decisions? No, because I... And I think I do know because I think I saw the same stuff about what the showrunners have said about it. 
Rob Thomas, who's the main creator behind it, has said that like they needed to remove Logan so that she could go out and grow on her own to get rid of the soap opera aspects and to let it be a detective show. Um, well, they were also saying some, that it, this was part of her hitting rock bottom, so she had nowhere to go but up as far as developing emotionally. Right. Because they're pushing for a se- they were pushing for a season five. Which seems to may maybe or maybe not be on the cards. Hulu said they're not planning it at the moment. Yeah. Yeah, now Logan dying at the end, it did feel gratuitous to me. And this pattern of trauma that you're talking about of just like more and more being heaped on Veronica in particular does very much remind me of like Grey's Anatomy, which is rightfully also you know, called out for doing similar things. You know, it's like the game of one-upmanship that you're talking about, where it's like, well, we've had a plane crash. What can we do now? It's like, you know, in that show, there's been a plane crash. There's been a a bomb in a patient. There's been a shooting at the hospital. There's been, you know, all sorts of stuff. So yeah, there it's doing a very similar sort of thing. And it's an attempt to keep the drama going by just piling on whatever seems the scariest thing to happen in, you know, American consciousness right now. So I have two major problems with the decision to kill off Logan, which I know a lot of people have got problems with the decision to kill off Logan. There were petitions to not do that. Well, they don't show the body, so... Right, which which is an argument I've made, is that, like, I think that there is room for them to retcon his death out of there. I don't think that they will, Mm -hmm. but because I have problems with the choice, I wish that they would. Did I say I have two problems? I have some problems. They're removing the most constructive force from her life. I'd be more interested in seeing a show about support from people like Keith and Logan, Mm -hmm. and maybe she has some friends Mm -hmm. who are able to call her out on this, rather than a show about her hitting rock bottom and Mm -hmm. only then turning around. Like, she, we've already seen her pretty low at various points. Yeah. They've said that part of it is that they want... They want her to be able to go off and do her own thing, effectively. Mm -hmm. Which, I can understand the impulse, but also you already have a character who is in the Navy that Mm -hmm. departs for a couple of points during the show Mm -hmm. to go and do being in the Navy things. Yeah, for indeterminate amounts of time. You have this handy excuse of, why is Veronica not with Logan this season? He's not around. Maybe she has a phone call with him at some point. Mm -hmm. It can be a nice plot device of how how can you explain this thing while she explains it on the phone to her husband. He doesn't even need to be there. Just one side of the phone call. Mm -hmm. So that frustrates me as a reason for that. Mm -hmm. But also what it tells me is that the people behind this show do not understand what the appeal of their show is. Yeah, Logan is one of the most charismatic, engaging characters on the show. And their relationship is one of the really interesting things through the show. Like, I think in a minute we can probably talk about the arc of that relationship and Mm -hmm. how interestingly drawn it is. Mm -hmm. But they keep, you keep seeing things, Kristen Bell said some stuff about it, but Rob Thomas mostly, where it's like the, yeah, it's a detective show. And it's going to be about being a detective. And it's like, well, no, it's not. If it was, the mystery in season four would have been better. (laughs) Shade aside, it is about the people as Mm -hmm. much as anything else. That's why people have watched it for so long. And one of the reasons that there was so much outcry after season four Mm -hmm. is that fans were like, well, no, we did a Kickstarter because Mm -hmm. we loved this show to Mm -hmm. get a film. The reason that we did that was because we loved this show and you're trying to take away the thing that we loved about the show, which was the drama of it. It's not just a detective show. Yeah. And I mean, they're the creators and they can make what they like, but I don't think that they necessarily understand why people liked what they were making before. Yeah. I definitely think that makes sense. I don't really have a whole lot to add to that, though. Yeah. 
I know, like with the way they ended season four, I enjoyed the show and I would consider watching it again mm-hmm. if they brought out another season, but I'm not sure that I would. Yeah, it's interesting because what they end up kind of doing is highlighting traumatic events on a higher and higher scale, like things that are traumatic to more and more people because they go from the singular murder of someone and like how that affects the community of people who knew that person to a bus crash and how that affects a larger community. And they do explore that yeah. through various ways. They like it's not just the one girl that is in a coma afterwards mm-hmm. that they care about. They do go and they talk to people who knew the teacher. They talk mm-hmm. to people like the parents of a couple of the kids on yeah. there. And then you have the bombings of the various businesses and like how that's creating an atmosphere of fear in the community. Not to mention all the rapes. Not yeah, and the yeah, on the campus. Yeah, the the serial rape on the yes, that's part of that escalation. So it's like you're seeing larger and larger spheres of like traumatic influence being kind of highlighted and put on a stage for an audience to understand like the impact of and at the same time that they're doing that giving more and more of a platform for larger and larger scale trauma they're intentionally trying to systematically break down this glorification of violence but instead what they're glorifying is emotional violence and like personal trauma Mm. Um, because you're supposed to feel deeply uncomfortable when things get violent during the show like the scene where Aaron is beating uh, Trina's boyfriend and it's like that's Amore is playing over it in a very disconcerting like juxtaposition which is an excellent storytelling device in itself like the way that they counter the violence of that scene with the romantic sound of that music It's to show you how fucked up it is, you know, and how disturbing it is that a person can do this. And also how disturbing it is that someone can, you know, switch from doing that, beating someone to a pulp, to cheerfully asking their kid how school was without missing a beat. You're supposed to see how weird and and disjointed that is. Does Logan join in on the beating? No. Okay. But he does say when they're walking away, father knows best in a kind of weird, like, semi-approving way, because he was going to beat the guy up which is a part of him absorbing those patterns. But there's that, there's just how long the scene where an Aaron is trying to kill Veronica goes, like how violent that is, how many things are broken, how she's crying and like pleading and, you know, just how uncomfortable that whole thing is. But they, like the showrunners really want you to know that violence isn't okay and it's not something to be glorified and it's something to worry about those impulses in yourself when you see the way that Logan ends up being worried about if he's like his father and if he's the same kind of man he that he is and who he hates. Yeah. But while you do see Dick have similar concerns about, like, emotional abuse and you see Logan get therapy at the end, there's less... I think there's less reverence for, like, the emotional fallout of these things. And so it ends up feeling a little... That's, I think, why it starts to feel gratuitous when these things get bigger and bigger. And yet people aren't given any time to heal or any real acknowledgement of their pain, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yes, I agree. And I do want to clarify, I do really like this show. It's a great show. It's very compelling. I love that it goes into so many different kinds of uh, traumatic events, so many different kinds of relationships, but the way that a relationship can have healthy aspects and unhealthy aspects at the same time, you know, a lot of, and how, how things are complicated, how relationships between people and the process of coming to terms with difficult things has a lot of moving forward and a lot of moving backward. And I, I like how that is portrayed, but 
yeah, the the consistent one up thing, jumping the shark type yeah. situation, I think is a problem. Yeah, and I, mean, I I will also clarify, like I do like the show, um, and I think it does do a lot of things very well. Um, mm-hmm. It's it's very it's easier to pick apart some of the things that it doesn't do well yeah. in this situation. And like I sit here, I and I'm like, would I rewatch the show? And I, I like the the thing that sticks in my like there are some things that aren't handled well that I want to go into in a minute, and some things that I handle surprisingly well. Mm-hmm. But like I think that that the ending is just so gratuitous and intentionally yeah. traumatic, and also just like a shitty ending to that character. Yeah. Especially like on a personal level, as like a character who's been out in war and is, talks about IEDs at one point, mm-hmm. and for someone who, if he had got killed in a fight, mm-hmm. I might be upset about it, but I get it. Mm-hmm. But it's such a shit way for him to go out. I mean, it's very and... similar to the way Don Lamb goes out, and so I think it feels unjust because of that. Right. And it's like it's, unjust is a good way. Of it's it. unjust enough that there's so little acknowledgement of Don Lamb being gone, just because he is kind of a thorn in the side of the protagonist for such a long time. Even if he's not like a major antagonist, he is somebody that bothers her consistently, and so he is a presence in the show, and it felt unjust for that to be so unremarkable in the larger story for that to happen to logan it feels hugely unjust and i think that on top of that the and one of the problems i have with season four is that they lose yeah they don't work out the riddles in time they don't stop the guy in time logan still dies and Mm -hmm. the gentrification still happens you fast forward at the end of the season to a year later and Spring Breakers aren't a thing anymore, and the boardwalk is all fancy shops, and mm-hmm. um, J.K. Simmons has got his car dealership. Not like his vintage car showroom. Mm-hmm. There's... J.K. Simmons? The, the actor, he plays right. the big dicks. Yeah, I'm trying to remember the name of the actor. Clyde. Yeah, Clyde. Like, there's no... It doesn't feel like there's any justice at the end of it. Mm-hmm. So, like, I kind of hope that they have a season five so they can fix some problems. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that whatever they produce in season five is likely to be what I want it to be. Unless they retcon Logan back. Which, as I say, like, they could do. It yeah. could be done as a, well, you know, he got very badly injured and then the Navy used that as a way to have him be a secret operative because he mm-hmm. ran out and they could claim that he was dead and Veronica mm-hmm. can't tell anyone about it. All this stuff. But mm-hmm. it's kind of a long walk. I don't think that they're likely to do it. Yeah. I'll, I'll go and write my fan fiction. It's fine. Yeah, that was essentially the thought I had too. It was like exactly that um, way of turning it around so he's not really dead. You know, it's the military making use of a convenient situation or engineering the situation. And um, the only reason that I think that they could do something with that or that they might even con- consider it is the fact that you get so little closure. You yeah. don't get a funeral you just get that weird message with from the therapist and none of the conversations are like i'm assuming that the narration and the conversations are avoiding saying logan is dead mm-hmm. because of it being it being a sign of her trying to like having trouble accepting it Mm-hmm. But at the same time, at no point is it actually stated that he's dead. It's interesting because it puts the audience in the same position Logan was in after his mother's suicide. Right. Where he can't believe that it really happened. One, because the way that it happened doesn't seem true to her character. Yeah. Um, He feels like she wouldn't jump off a bridge and risk being a ugly, ugly corpse. corpse. That she would take a bunch of pills in a bath, you know, or something, you know, suitably glamorous where, you know, it could be somewhat romanticized and not hurt. And then 
that's prolonged, like the disbelief in her disappearance is prolonged by tabloid reports of her still being alive and her credit cards then being used by Trina. Yeah. And so he's like, well, they never found the body. And so it's very hard for him to let go of that hope. And it's interesting that they put the audience in that same position, especially when that's one of the things that was a real turning point for his character in terms of, you know, coming to terms with how he interacted with people and, you know, looking for help from people that he had previously not opened up to and just generally becoming a more emotionally available person. It's also interesting because Jason Doring was mm-hmm. did a video, like, who played Logan, did a video a little bit after the season finished talking about, like... Yeah, and like was sad that it had happened and sort of made a noise about like, oh, you know, I think they could probably bring him back. Mm-hmm. I, I think that the more likely way that we would see the actor reprise the role is pro- like from based on what's happened in the show in the past and what the showrunners seem to want to do would be more in a sort of haunting way, like you get Lily's memory Mm -hmm. slash ghost appearing to Veronica a couple of times. Which is in itself a very interesting storytelling device that I feel is an appropriate time to talk about now. Yes, we we should probably move on to me complaining um, about. Because in the first season mostly, but also occasionally in season two, I think, I'm not sure if it happens in season three, you see Lily's ghost appearing and talking to Veronica and Duncan at different points in time. Yeah. And it seems like it's just them kind of thinking about her and remembering her and imagining her. Well, for Duncan, it's when he's off his mitts. And yeah, and when Duncan seems to pretty clearly be hallucinations. But then when the bus crash happens, it's implied that a visitation from Lily distracts Veronica from getting back on the bus and is why she missed the bus and is why she doesn't die. Yeah. And so then it does seem like more of a haunting where Lily's spirit does have some agency and impact on the world and it's very unclear as to whether you're supposed to take that literally or not. Yeah. Um, Or whether that's maybe something that Veronica made up after the fact to explain, like, mentally, like, why she didn't get on the bus or whatever. Um, so yeah, if they did that sort of thing with Logan, it wouldn't be out of nowhere because yeah. they did that with Lily, but I still think it'd be kind of cheap to do that. I do think it's interesting how well they managed to characterize Lily and like give her a lot of personality and like interiority through just flashbacks and other people talking about her though. Like that is very neatly done. Yeah. When I say it would be cheap for them to do that with Logan, the Logan character, I don't mean to say that that wasn't well done. Yeah. Did you have anything else to say about Lily? No, I don't think I have anything in particular about on Lily. It's interesting because, like, she's drawn as Veronica's best friend, but I don't think that she's ever particularly drawn as, like, a good person. I don't think she's necessarily drawn as a bad person either. Like, she's sort of a reckless and careless person, but she's also, like, 16. Yeah, I mean, like, she she is a shitty teenage girl, is yeah. what it comes down to. Like, I mean, the... Her relationship with Weevil sounds kind of messed up. Oh, totally. So She's very manipulative and hedonistic and very much preoccupied with manipulating other people, mostly her parents, like getting attention and things like that. But it's in a very believable, to me, way of a lot of teenage girls, especially teenage girls who are not getting a whole lot of emotional support and maybe who are in a position where the easiest way for them to get any sort of somewhat positive attention is through their sexuality. Yeah. It's 
the sort of believable thing where I feel like she would have grown out of it or she would have matured and she would probably have still been a very fun and, you know, free-spirited type of person, but I do think she definitely had the potential to grow beyond right. the short-sightedness and the manipulating of other people in much the same way that Logan also I was going to say, yeah, I mean, like, Logan is a complete shitbag at, mm-hmm. at the start, yeah. Um, I mentioned earlier I wanted to talk about a couple of things that they don't handle well or slash do handle well. And that's the LGBT representation within the show. Yeah, it's very mixed. As far as it comes down to homosexuality, I think that it is pretty bad across the board. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a point at which they use a gay character to blackmail someone else by setting up a weird sort of, like, it looking like he's dating someone. So he'll get kicked out of the Navy. Yeah. Under Don't Ask, Don't Tell, which has yeah. since been revealed. Definitely fucked up. Cassidy, or Beaver, is sort of hinted at maybe being gay a few times. Or at least questioning his sexuality as a result of being sexually abused is really what's implied, which is a hugely problematic thing, especially... It's especially hinted at because one of the other victims of the same molester is gay, and one of the other ones is described as being kind of on the fence in terms of sexuality. So there's definitely this implication of being molested turning you gay, which is casting homosexuality as, like, an aberrant behavior that's a response to trauma rather than just a feature of who some people are. Um, It's obviously deeply problematic. And these were her early 2000s, so I'm hoping that it would be progress. I'm not sure... There's also the blackmail ring that turns out to be engineered by a lesbian who's just setting it up to force her girlfriend to come out of the closet because she doesn't want to be closeted with her girlfriend. Oh, I'd forgotten all about um, that. And so that's messed up in that... Which season's that in? It's when they're still in high school, so it's either the first or second season. I want to say second right. season. Some students come to Veronica because some people are threatening to out the gay students who have like their own like little social network Right, I've forgotten all about that. And um, Veronica eventually gets to the bottom of it, and it turns out that it's ultimately a girl who is out as a lesbian and dating someone who's closeted and doesn't want to be, you know, have to hide her relationship. And so she's using the blackmail of all of the gay students to kind of force everyone out of the closet so her girlfriend will come out of the closet, which is just fucked up. Like, you don't out other people. That sounds like what happens when a straight person tries to write a progressive LGBT plot. It's yeah. like, everyone should be out and free about it. It's like, yeah, that's not how it works. I'm sorry. Yeah, and um, that I, I relationship that the world. would not last. Like, she did it, she tried to do it that way so that her girlfriend wouldn't know it was because of her Yeah, that she had to come out of the closet. But yeah, so that that's all kinds of problematic. I don't, I don't think we necessarily have to get into... Why? Because I think that's pretty clear, but... I don't think that there's actually any LGBT characters in season four. I don't think so. Which, I mean, I'd always rather that they weren't well, but I'd rather that they weren't there than done badly. No, I don't know on that one. But then there's the trans side of things, which there's a really, really messed up problematic scene where there's a trans woman sex worker that, that like... Cassidy Cassidy and Mac. Cassidy and Mac hire to hook up with Dick to do a whole gay scare with him on that. It's a trans panic setup. Right, yes. But the implication is that he's... Yes, okay, trans panic. Yes, okay. And let's, let's restate that just for clarity. Yeah, and that's messed up because then you see, like, Dick responding in a very transphobic way. Yeah. Which is gross but not unexpected of Dick because he's, like, got a very narrow worldview and is just a very shallow person in general and is super... Like, very much evaluates himself by... 
his, like, sexual promiscuity and things like yeah. that, and, like, you know, conquest and bullshit, which is all, obviously, all sorts of unhealthy. But it also, to me, it's interesting because it's Cassidy being cruel in that way, and it's one of the first times that we see Cassidy being explicitly cruel and fucked up in a way that's very much not thinking about how other people feel or, you know, how his actions are going to affect them. So it's a little bit of telegraphing that that's something he's capable of. Yeah. And I think that, like, generally the everyone else's reaction to it is gross, like, because mm-hmm. it's in the school car park or something. Yeah. And but it's it... very invalidating of trans women as women in that, like, right. it's, the whole point is to implicate that Dick is gay if he is attracted to a trans woman, which is, of course, invalidating right. of trans identities. But... but it's, like, particularly upsetting that they did that when I hadn't realized how early in season one until I was looking back over it for this. Like, they have a episode where a kid is looking for his father, and mm-hmm. Veronica tracks the parent down, and it turns out that they're a trans woman who have sort of moved away, but are trying to come and see the kid every so often because they want to have that connection. And just make sure that they're healthy and stuff. And the kid has a reaction of being grossed out by it, mm-hmm. but there's very much a conversation with Veronica about, like, you're being ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And it's very, that that is very progressive and forward thinking, and especially for the early 2000s, it's handled, mm-hmm. I think, very well, actually. Yeah. And for them then to go back and do that with the... Cassidy Cass- thing. Yeah, it's, um, it's upsetting. It is upsetting, but I think I have fewer problems with it than I might otherwise, because of who is doing this and who is reacting negatively because that is more believable. It sucks, but it's more of a reflection of how shitty the world is and how, you know, the the amount of progress that still needed to happen at that time. It would have been a lot better if at least someone in that situation had done something or said something to counter it in some yeah. way. And it disappointed me a lot that Mac was involved in that. Yeah. Because it made me think less of her as a character. And again, these are all teenagers who have a very limited exposure and understanding of, you know, gender expansiveness and things like that. But it was disappointing that there wasn't anyone to do what Veronica had done in the earlier episode of be like, that's fucked up. But the problem is that you're looking at it from the point of view of the characters. Mm-hmm. And with, from the point of view of the audience. Yeah. That's where it's really important. Because there's a distinction between showing culture how it is and showing culture how it is and saying that's a problem. Yes, you're right. Because one reinforces and one doesn't. And if you're just showing someone going, uh, you've got a dick, mm-hmm. then you're reinforcing. Yeah. You're no, not you're challenging right. it. So You're right. That is a place where they definitely faltered and could you know, should have done better. And I clearly would, could have, considering they did it better before. I would put a decent amount of money without looking that those two episodes were not written by the same person. I would... I was actually going to say the same thing. Like, those, there was probably different creative helming of But those. the same showrunner probably signed off on both. But. Yeah. <laughs> and it does. it is a lack of continuity in the handling of just LGBT issues and trans issues in, in particular. Yeah. Did you want to talk... You had some stuff that you were talking about earlier with the laws and how they're represented and what is actually legal uh, yeah. and mm-hmm. what, what can what can be disclosed in the court of law. Did you want to talk about that? Sure. There are some interesting things that were pointed out by TV trips that are, I definitely want to attribute this to them because there are some points where the law is misrepresented for plot reasons and that's interesting because like there are several times when people want Veronica or Keith to prove someone didn't kill themselves 
because suicide uh, invalidating life insurance policies or whatever. But in California, prior to the show, that's not legally the case. Like, if someone commits suicide, your life insurance will still pay out as long as you've had the policy for more than two years. And if you have had the policy less than two years, you just get all your premiums back. So you're still getting a decent amount of money, even if it's not the full payout. And it certainly isn't a case of it making the policy invalid. There's also the point where Aaron Eccles ends up getting acquitted of the murder of Lily Kane, and that's a huge blow to Veronica and to Logan and to the audience and everybody. Because, in part, they managed to damage Veronica's credibility by dredging up her medical history and the fact that she was treated for syphilis to kind of make it seem like she was, like, this slutty teenage girl who had thrown herself at Aaron and was lying because he rejected her or something. And that, like, dredging up her medical records like that was a violation of HIPAA and would have resulted in a mistrial. The character assassination could get passed, but not the use of her medical records that way. And the fact that they don't have a mistrial afterward because of that is a problem in terms of it being realistic, I guess. Yeah. Um, There are other things like that, but those are like the big ones that I remember from looking at that. So it's just cases of the law not being presented in the same way. And of course, the contrast there being when Veronica reports her rape to the police and she's basically slut-shamed and laughed out. That does happen, but I question showing it that way on television for the same reason you were saying that, you know, you're reinforcing this, because that just encourages people to not report, and that doesn't always happen. Like, there are increasing efforts to, you know, make that less of a problem, but... Yeah. yeah anyway. I guess with other things... I don't know. Yeah. I, guess, I guess that the other legality things that you mentioned aren't as much of an issue with people. No, no. Yeah. I suppose the suicide thing. The suicide thing, like, anyway, like, you know, there's some questionable ethics in terms of perpetuating false stereotypes of things like that that might discourage people from taking legal action. Okay, so the big question. Well, we didn't talk about all the storytelling stuff. Oh, what storytelling stuff do you have? Um, well, just as, like, a storytelling element that I wanted to point out. This show does a lot of foreshadowing or like character development hints before bigger character reveals so that those reveals are more believable. Yeah. And I just wanted to point out the pattern of some of those things. And like the most obvious ones are you get Aaron's beat down of Trina's boyfriend in that long and uncomfortable scene. And you get Cassidy setting up his dad for the fraud getting Veronica to investigate Kendall in a way to set up his dad to go down for white-collar crime and get all of the assets in his and Dick's name, as well as him setting up Dick with the trans sex worker as hints of their larger character as being sociopaths and bad people and willing to hurt other people for their own ends. And so I just thought that was interesting because it is hard to believe somebody is capable of some of those things out of nowhere, but they manage to kind of plant that seed. I think one of the nice things with both season one and season two was that they were both drawn well enough that by the time we were getting towards the last few episodes, I was able to say, I think it was this person and I was right, which Mm -hmm. I think is a sign of a good mystery Mm -hmm. is that you can... Did you call Cassidy? he, He was on my shortlist. Right. So I think I had a list of like three people that it might have been and he Mm -hmm. was on there. And you were like, really? Mm -hmm. But I think in 
particular with Cassidy, I'm not like I I'm not sure if they do it better or not as well as with Aaron because you like him so much in a lot of ways because of other depictions of him throughout the season. He's this punching bag of a character. You feel so bad for him. You're so happy for him when he and Mac kind of click and seem to have this really adorable relationship going on. But then you also kind of see some of the toxicness in him from his family. And so you're kind of like, that's kind of messed up. I think it's harder to see his motive coming. Yeah. Like you don't really know why you think he might be the villain until the final episode of the season that you find it out. But it was telegraphed enough that he could do these things and that mm-hmm. he was doing enough shitty stuff mm-hmm. that you could predict it. Yeah. There's like a point when he threatens Dick. He by like Dick is going to do something. Um I think it might be after the setup with the trans sex worker, I can't remember, but at one point Dick is gonna threaten threatening to get him back later and he's like, remember what happened to Sally? And that's not ever explained, but it, like, shuts Dick up, like, immediately. And so you're like, okay, like, what the fuck is that about? I do know what it's about. um, I think Rob Thomas has talked about it. But apparently it's a pet of Dick's that Cassidy killed when they were kids after after Dick had hurt him or done something to him or humiliated him in some way. And so, like, but it's just stuff like that. They're, like, giving you these hints that, yeah, under that, like, kind of soft and, you know, constantly pushed down little brother character is somebody who is going to go for your eyes. You don't know exactly when, but, like, the wrong move, you know, and they are going to be completely ruthless. And that's really, like, the defining thing about Cassidy is he's surprisingly ruthless. Yeah. Whereas, and so is Aaron. Aaron is too, but he is to preserve his, and for both of them, it's the same thing. It's to preserve their image. For Aaron, it's to preserve his movie star image and, like, not lose his reputation for having committed a rape against a teenage girl. And for Cassidy, it's because he doesn't want to lose his image and be humiliated in his mind by having people know that he was molested as a child. Yeah. Wait, 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 wait. Is that the bell I hear? It's toxic masculinity! Indeed. And it's so sad because with Cassidy in particular, it's really sad because he didn't do any like that's not his fault like he didn't do anything wrong and he ends up becoming a villain essentially to protect someone else who is to protect woody but he's not really protecting woody he's protecting himself he's protecting what shred of dignity he feels he has left and it's just so sad because that's somebody who doesn't feel like he's going to get any sympathy or any support for that trauma that he feels like it's just going to be some other weakness for dick and his dad to exploit yeah, I depending on when he killed Dick's pet, mm. where my sympathies lie there is diff- like because that that's a different level of behavior. One of those serial killer markers. Yeah, I I feel like the more that I hear from Rob Thomas, the bigger the, what I come down on is that I really like Veronica Mars, and I just don't really like Rob Thomas. It's mm. like Black Books and Grey and Linehan. Mm. It's like the show, yes. Anyway, so I think we've. Touched on most of the major things we wanted to talk about there. I believe you had a big question. What do we think this show is trying to draw attention to? Like, what is it trying to make us think about or do in the world or, you know, observe in the world, you know, in the early 2000s and then in 2019 for season four? I think that's a really difficult question for a couple of reasons. One, as you say, like, for it's the early 2000s through to 2019. Like, it's been going for so long and it's talking about different things. 
But also because, to some degree, the characters are so unhealthy mm-hmm. and aren't always explicitly stated as such, it can be a little bit difficult to see what the message is. Like, I think that it probably has a little bit of that Fight Club problem, mm. which I think we've spoken about before. Or if you're glorifying it, you're missing the point. Yeah. Like, I'm sure that there are people who are like, I want to be just like Veronica Mars, and it's like... There are a lot of good things that you could take from Veronica Mars. There are a lot of bad things, too. I think it's like with The Big Sleep. It does fall into the mystery area of working to challenge some of the things that are going on in society. Mm -hmm. It seems to be fighting against a cultural shift that leaves behind the people that need help the most. You see the, as we talked about, like that recurring class divide, the incorporation, the attempts to beautify and gentrify an area. It seems to be some of the most prevalent things. I think that does hold up when you look at the characters, too, because the person who's murdered in the first season is the black sheep in the family, the one who is not the favorite child. Yeah. And the same, the villain in the second one is the one who, the, the kid who's being shit on in the family consistently. And, like, the kids, and the kids who are blown up in that bus are the poor kids. Yeah. In the third season, the women on campus keep being victimized during a period of time when things like that happen on college campuses. A lot of the time, the victims are being silenced or not ignored or forced to make way for the people yeah. they've accused. And... I think if you look at the clients that Mars Investigation deals with as well, there's a fairly heavy weighting towards the idea of sticking up for the little guy. Yeah. And like in season four, the people that Keith is helping out, it's a grocery store mm-hmm. and there's not going to be a lot of money from that case. And mm-hmm. Keith knows that, but he's putting the work in because of his... And Veronica chastises him a bit for that. Mm-hmm. It's like, we've got to keep the lights on. These people aren't going to be able to pay us enough. Mm-hmm. And you see that sort of other side of it when they do get someone in who's going to be able to pay a lot of money. It tends to be for something more frivolous, like, mm-hmm. is my husband cheating on me? Mm-hmm. And then it tends to be less of a, we need to help these people, and more of a, we'll be able to live for so long because we're in a weaker position financially. Right. Like, the whole living to work rather than working to live. Yeah. Yeah. Just about priorities. Yeah. And I think that does kind of flow, too, with the relationships and it's like, communication and the fact that you do need other people. You can't do this by yourself. You need a community, and part of that involves openness and communication and trust. I don't think I see how that... Like, Veronica, like, she's always... She keeps getting saved when people who she didn't necessarily trust to help her do... But because she was talking to them or they did know something about it, like, they're able to help her. I don't know. You mean we It might, yeah. It might be, and Logan sometimes. It yeah. might be a stretch, but just, like, this idea that a community is more than just one person and another person vaguely nearby, like, independently doing things. Like, there are some interactions there that are necessary to make it work. Yeah, and I think that as far as the, like, an overarching against wealth at the expense of others... Mm-hmm. You've got the Tritons and the castle as these secret societies that are where the really wealthy people get their starts from. Mm-hmm. And it's the, oh, if you're part of this, then you're set for life. Yeah. And, oh, look at that. All the people in here are the people who are kids of the rich families. Yeah. And in both cases... And, the... ex- and uh, examples of exceptionalism, like right. Wallace, who's an exceptional athlete. Right, yes. And in both cases, like, Veronica kind of works to tear those down a bit. Because they are institutions that perpetuate... Inequality. Right. Yeah. 
and divides and class divides. Yeah. So I think that the, the show as a whole is largely trying to work against those. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's so the points when it falters on that tend to be their own commentary on the fact that you've got to keep the lights on somehow in a capitalist world. Mm-hmm. I don't know, maybe I'm reading too much into it, but I think that as an overarching thing of what goes through the seasons, yeah, that's what it's about. And I think that that's a, a good notch on the um, mystery can challenge the status quo as much as it can... Yeah, that it does seem to mostly be like just challenging this idea of being complacent with the inequality, that it's something that you really should challenge and work against by, by engaging in efforts to bring people together and to reduce inequality and make sure people are getting more chances regardless of their circumstances, like especially if they're not coming from the privileged side. Yeah. That's a good answer to the big question. But I think the bigger question is, is if this is a film noir gender flip, is Logan the femme fatale? TV Trip says that he is. But I don't know if I trust them. They've We've had some questions about their, like, Sherlock Holmes mapping earlier, so... He does sort of swoop in and save Veronica when she doesn't really expect him to, and while he's still sort of an antagonist for her. How are we defining femme fatale? I don't know. And there's, like, a whole lot of the fan service him being shirtless and stuff, and, like, really trying to capitalize on him being a young, fit man. And there's, like, those scenes of, like, Veronica still kind of hates him, but is also kind of attracted to him, and, you know can't resist the urge to make out with him even though she's dating someone else and, like, those things. I think I'd probably buy it. As a contrast to Duncan, who is, like, the most boring... Yes, that Duncan, who could have been replaced with a couple cutouts. Yeah. Um, like, you kept forgetting his name for, like, the whole first season, and I could not blame you. The the first season, I really struggled. Like, there's so many people that are just generic white guys. Mm-hmm. It, I really... Yeah, I remember, I think it was, like, the poker game episode, which is season one or season right. two, and, like, you could not, for the life of you, tell which of those, like, four or five dudes were Duncan, except that you knew one of them was Logan, that's fine, but the rest of them, like, any of those could have been Duncan as far as you were concerned. He's just so unremarkable. Yeah. I don't understand Duncan. Yeah. I think I would in seasons one through three, because a femme fatale is, like, supposed to, like, be a bad idea. But also be, like, irresistibly attractive. Right. Yeah. And that does seem to be it. Like, you know, she knows that Logan is, it's a real weird choice. It's her dead best friend's ex-boyfriend, and it's her ex-boyfriend's best friend, and also a guy who's kind of messed up, got a lot of problems. I think it gets murky. Like, I think he's probably femme fatale until roughly about halfway through season three, Mm. and then he's getting far enough along his, like, arc of becoming a decent person. Mm-hmm. And he's like, we don't actually work together. Mm-hmm. Like, this doesn't work. Neither of us are happy. And, mm-hmm. like, goes off and does other stuff for a while. Yeah. And then comes back as a, like, femme good idea. Mm-hmm. Mem good idea. What's the male version of femme? I don't know. Hom? Hom. Hom? Yes, he's a hom good idea. I think it's om. I, I don't think you say the H, right? Like, because, like... Lom is like the for men or whatever, right? And like perfume or cologne. I think he'd be um. 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 <laughs> but yeah, no, yeah. yeah. Up to a point. Yes. He's like the Catwoman of the show. Yeah. Okay, we'll go with that. Uh, do we want to do some fun facts? Sure. Do you so, want to start or do you want me to start? I only have two, and I'm worried that you'll. Uh, you'll Still. Yes. Okay, you go ahead then. Um. So the first one I have is actually about the characters of Logan and Duncan and the actors that play them. Okay. 
is they actually both originally read and auditioned for the other one. Interesting. And that they were then both, like, Logan was, uh, Jason Derrick was then asked to, like, read for Logan's parts, and, like, his audition for that was the scene where he's smashing in the headlights on the car. Uh-huh. And when he was first playing the scenes against Veronica, he was playing them with the assumption that he was the rapist. Oh. Which is presumably why he comes across as such an asshole at first. Oh, he does come across as such an asshole. Why did he think that he was the rapist? They might not have told him. I don't know. Oh. It didn't say on the part that I was reading. Interesting. Okay. The other fun fact I have is that Rob Thomas originally had the idea for it as a young adult novel. Mm-hmm. And the main character was going to be male, but changed it because it would be thought it would be more interesting to have a female protagonist, which I know. Yes, but also vaguely problems. So, a lot of plot points do seem to hinge on Veronica being female. Right. I mean, they would have changed it for the show. Yeah. But... But yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. I actually also had that fun fact from an article from Den of Geek, and they also include that the novel about the male teen detective was going to be about Keith Mars. So presumably they just kept that name for her dad. Oh, the original was actually going to be set in, like, the 80s. <laughs> and this is technically a sequel to the unpublished novel. I mean, he must have been a teen... At some point. At some point, yeah. <laughs> okay, any other fun facts? Did you have any other fun facts? No, I had two. I said okay. Alright, so I have some additional fun facts. So some of them are original plot points that ended up being changed by the network or uh, Rob Thomas later. So originally, Duncan and Veronica were supposed to be half-siblings, but the network would not allow them to do a sex scene for siblings who were actually, like, blood siblings. I think that it's probably best that they didn't do that. Yeah. Because it also, like, I think that the relationship... Yeah. Yeah. So, but that that was supposed to happen. So... Awesome. Yeah. Speaking of the network, they demanded smaller arcs for season wait, three. Wait, wait, wait. Can I just... I just want to take a moment to say that once again, like Veronica Mars, not sure I like Rob Thomas. Yeah. Um, speaking of the network, they also demanded smaller arcs for season three, uh. which is why it switches from the full season arcs of one and two. And the reason they wanted this is because they thought it would make it more accessible to new viewers so they wouldn't be coming in in the middle of a mystery. And that had switched to a new network at that point, hadn't it? So it had gone from UPN to CW between yeah, two and three. Yeah, I believe so. And unfortunately, like, I think it backfired because like, the, the full season arc is way more compelling. Like It's what keeps people engaged with the show. So that definitely didn't work. And you'll notice they will return to the full season arc for season four. Although a much shorter season. Although a much shorter season, yeah. But they did go back to that. Yeah. I was nodding throughout all of that, by the way. I realize that nodding is the best podcast response. But... Yeah. Um, my other one about the network is that they did make some interventions for good. Okay. Um, originally, uh, Rob Thomas wanted Keith and Veronica to be estranged at the end of the pilot because Keith was going to have hidden postcards from Veronica's mom from Veronica, um, and she was supposed to have found them and you know, no longer be speaking to her dad. But the network said that with everything else that she was dealing with, they couldn't take her dad away from her too. Like there's like a like a long like a, a note that they sent him, but it's like essentially like her best friend's been murdered, her mom has left, 
you know, she's being shunned at school. You can't take her dad, too. Like, Good job, Nebula. Yeah, like, there, I think there was, like, a laundry list, but she, and she's been raped. Like, there, there was just, don't, no, no, you can't do that. Which, yeah, I agree with as well. I think it's much more compelling that she has that relationship to rely on for almost the entire show. And that the relationship can have stumbling blocks. Yeah, I think it, it also makes it a lot more powerful when she does become somewhat estranged from her father when she loses respect for him because of the affair he has and, like, giving her the same excuses that all of the other guys they've caught cheating give, and, and he realizes that, and it's a moment of them actually, like, having an issue and being able to move past it, and it really shows their character, I think, a lot better. So the other fun facts I have is, um, you mentioned the Kickstarter for the movie earlier. Yeah. Um, that Kickstarter broke the record for fastest to reach a million dollars. Uh, did that in four hours and 24 minutes. Jesus Christ. It reached its $2 million funding goal in 11 hours, and it ended with $5.7 million, which broke the previous record for most donations. Um, it went from a previous record of 87,000 donations to 91,585 donations. I believe that's since been broken, but still, like, crazy impressive. Well, it was the first time a movie was kickstarted on Kickstarter, wasn't it? I'm not sure about that, but I am... I, I did have these... Records on here. No, you must have all of the statistics. Yeah, so, but I thought that was really interesting because it really does show how strongly the show captured an audience and how passionately people felt about it and, you know, how much they wanted to have more of this universe and more of these characters, so. And my last fun fact is that Harry Hamlin, who plays Aaron Eccles, um, was the sexiest man of the 80s in both the real world and in the world of the show. So Aaron Eccles was supposedly the sexiest man of the 80s in Veronica Mars, and Harry Hamlin was the sexiest man of the 80s in the real world. He's also married to his in-universe wife, because Lynn Eccles, Aaron's wife in Veronica Mars, is played by Lisa Rinna of Desperate Housewives, who is Harry Hamlin's actual wife. Huh. If we're doing Harry Hamlin fun facts, there was one I stumbled across, which was that he played perseus in the clash of the titans right and they show it in veronica mars it's hilarious but when they made god of war 2 mm -hmm. the video game they had him voice perseus that's great so. they, there's also a like an easter egg in one of the episodes somebody is watching clash, clash of the titans yeah um and it is called out that that's logan's dad so yeah they definitely there's a lot of clever uh, Easter eggs throughout the show and like clever wordplay and things like that that they just do a lot that I, I think does also tie into the mystery genre of just liking to have like clever fun things like that so yeah but I think that's it okay do we have any feedback follow-up or late thoughts I don't think so okay you can find us on social media on Facebook and Instagram at unramblings on Twitter at unramblings pod you can email us with questions, comments, suggestions, corrections. Whatever. Places to get good food in Atlanta at unramblingspodcast at gmail.com. And please feel free to continue the conversation with the hashtag unramblings on social media. We'll keep our eyes open and respond to anything we see. Thank you for listening to Unramblings. We hope you'll join us next week. We don't know. Hi, Shadow there in terms of like a I remember uh -uh. when I first like saw the really I remember when I first saw the first couple of episodes. Apparently all of our cats are itchy right now. <laughs>